Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Well, whoops, we missed an episode there, uh, mainly because, I mean, partly I think it was a mixture of travel and sickness and just insane schedules, but thank you listeners for bearing with us while we coped um, with uh, sort of trying to get our, we were almost, we were all set to record and then I got stuck in traffic and then Sarah got really yeah, sick. I mean, we, and d- we try not to enter into like the uh, vaccine foray, but like get your flu vaccine because it's really bad if you get the flu. <laughs> the flu. <laughs> No, I had I had people being like you know, there's there's billboards around our town, they're like, remember me, and then it says like the flu, yeah. come get your yeah. shot. <laughs> she remembers you, girl, okay? Like the flu has not forgotten you. Yeah. So you guys got three of hit the four the of flu. us got it. Yeah, I had a hundred and two fever, which as an adult oh, no. is most unpleasant. Yeah. It's uh it was the body aches are the worst, man. Those are the worst. And yeah. then and then just the weighty guilt of having not gotten anyone a flu vaccination, you know, as the mother bearer of medical responsibility. So yeah. So you did not do no flu shots for you guys. That seems a little early, but we're Maybe you got yeah. it in the early and end. And I'm just like a big fan of peppermint oil. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Rutger, what about you? Have you guys been healthy? Happy? No. Uh, we were a little sick. I got, I just like a 20. No, no, neither healthy nor happy. Um, I got a little bug like a week and a half ago, but it was, I, like, I felt kind of, you know, crappy and then went home and had a fever that night. And then I stayed home the next day just in case because I don't want to get anyone else sick. Um, but we, yeah, we've all gotten a little something like nothing as dire as I think what Sarah got, but I mean, my, my youngest son spent four days, uh, home from school sick, which just was, my oh, wife loves that. My wonderful. wife just yeah. loves oh, yeah. Lives kids. For it. Yes. <laughs> her, yeah, she's, yeah, she needs a, a vacation after that. Um, but no, we're generally doing okay. It is, it is, um, the insanity of the fall, you know, sort of the first real like ministry fall we've had since, uh, the pandemic. And of course, I'm like massively over-functioning and trying to do everything. And um, yeah, I probably bit off, I said, I bit off more than I can chew, but I'm just counting on the grace of Jesus to get me through. So yeah. there you go. And all good stuff. I mean, all good ministry stuff, but just um, too much, you know, too much. Too much when you're Rutger, Jan. Yeah. Hey, men. Um well, I think that that's like everywhere I go, I'm, I'm, I've been traveling so much for the book and I just keep talking to people in, in church work and it's I was like stewardship season, oh, yeah. stewardship yes. season. Raise that cash. And, uh, uh-huh. Which, Sarah, always... you don't really like, you don't have to do really, do you, do you send like fundraising letters to parents or do you? I what, do. I do, do some you? of that, yeah. but um, yeah, that is a huge blessing in my ministry is that the diocese funds us. And so, oh, um, amazing. I know it is amazing. I mean, it's See, that's, what, that's what everyone thinks every churches like they're like don't you just get money from the diocese it's like no no, no we send money you to the not. diocese yeah. so that sarah doesn't have to do stewardship i mean that's what <laughs> that's amazing and thank you all so much for your contribution you're a missionary we're funding um, your mission I, 
I don't think we could do two stewardship seasons in one household. I mean, so it is that like is totally God's true. grace yes. that, that I'm not also like I yes. do, you know, I'm, I'm Josh and I are talking about his constantly. And so, um, it's not like mm. it's not in my brain, but every time we talk about it, RJ, I think, thank God, I don't have to also do stewardship yes. season right now. So how are your travels been, Dave? You've been everywhere. Yeah. You're jet setter. Well, you know, one thing I should we should mention we haven't really mentioned yet, but I'll be we got a we got a Mockingbird conference in Tyler, Texas, coming up next. Sarah won't you're be not there busy this enough. year, but I will. I will be there. That's October 28th and 29th. And if you're anywhere near that area of Texas, wow. come on out. Jason Michelle will be there. Tish oh, Warren will be there. Uh, cool. Jason Thompson will be there. Uh, and it's just always a. I think we're doing a slightly different venue this time so i can't wait for that so it's not too late to come on out and see it. uh yeah i've been traveling i was just on the west coast um i find that i love it I, re- I really do enjoy it i think it takes a toll at home and uh being i don't know middle mid 40s now i can feel it in my body a little bit more yeah. than i as, as uh, i don't feel sick but you just feel disoriented in a in a kind of a strange way but the uh I was I was talking about this before we got on, but one of the great pleasures, and it's honestly like moving beyond words, is everywhere I've gone on this tour, as opposed to the you know seculosity which we traveled around in 2019. I'm just meeting so many people that to whom this program, this podcast means so much, mm. and uh, I, I it's it's taking me aback. Um, it, it's, it's deeply encouraging. It's also a little overwhelming because, you know, when, when people are crying and telling you that they wouldn't have gotten through without this or how much, Sarah, how much your grief has meant to people or our friendship or simply that just the, the thread of grace in everyday life. I don't know. It's, uh, it, I'm trying not to make it into sort of a burden to carry or something like that, but, you know, we, we don't do this simply for, you know, giggles. It, it, it it's nice to see that and to, to, to interact with people to whom the mocking cast in particular um, has been a lifeline. You know, we use those terms, we use those words. And, you know, if, the, if this were stewardship season for Mockingbird, which it's not, uh, I would probably, you know, try to capitalize on that. But yeah, I, uh, I could be a lot more tired than I am. And I, 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 th- I think that's because there's so much wind in the sails mm. from from the that yeah from what from this project in fact so i'm sorry we we missed an episode everyone thank you for bearing with us yeah sure. <laughs> um, i will say you guys even if it sounds weird to say i'm so glad this means so much to so many people but even even if nobody were listening i enjoy this time with you it's yeah. so fun Same. like yeah. it's uh, it's Same. the highlight anytime it comes up it's the highlight of my week and i was bummed to miss an episode and um it's just it's it's good. It's life-giving to me. So I'm grateful for the two of you. And I'm also grateful for the people who listen. It's kind of amazing. You know what it makes me think of? And I was thinking of this when we were talking about it before we started recording, but I think it was the first, I mean, people should sign up for Tyler. Like if you're, if you're in the area, like it's so worth the drive. And I remember my first Tyler conference speaking at it. And there was just this row of mockingbird guys and I remember Dave was there. Mocking I remember my bros. husband was there. Yeah, mocking hardly. And um, and, <laughs> and they're they're all sitting there. And I finished my talk, and I come down, and they're all weeping. <laughs> and I thought, I'm always gonna, I'm always gonna be in this. Like these are my people, and that's you know that's how this podcast feels for me. So I'm glad oh. that it speaks to other people. 
Yeah. Thanks, sir. I have to say, I've seen some stuff on social media recently, which has been disturbing about kind of masculine Christianity, you know, or feminine Christianity. But to me, like, that's masculine Christianity, you know, like guys who have the freedom to, you know, cry. Like, Jesus cries. Paul talks about remembering people with tears all the time like yeah. david is hyper emotional like there's nothing you know what i mean i i, I just i love and, that and, brian, and biblical yes 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 <laughs> and brian wilson sings about male tears constantly and, and, so and he's the most masculine the beach person boys. i can think of that's right that's falsetto just really <laughs> he's the he's the, the straight man's judy garland oh my god that is a t-shirt oh. wow okay <laughs> you heard it here first well, um, we got a lot to talk about today. Um, we're going to pivot a little bit from what we were going to talk about two weeks ago. And the first thing, Sarah, this is uh, this is—I feel like this is directly aimed at at all of us here. But uh, yeah, just listen to okay. this. Um, this is in the New York Times. Michael Denzel Smith wrote an article called "Why Do People Think Going to Therapy Makes You a Good Person." He talks about going back to therapy in his 40s after the pandemic. He says, I can't say how much influence the way other people, especially on social media, talk about therapy had on my decision making, but I'm sure it seeped in. There are armchair diagnoses of celebrities and other public figures happening in real time, alongside tweets admonishing people who display troubling behavior with the phrase, go to therapy. Hashtag Sarah Connor. I know. Uh, there are detailed fantasies unfurled in long threads about what the world might look like if everyone went to therapy and worked out their issues. So by not going to therapy, I reasoned, I was failing not only myself, but a vision of a utopia that existed just on the other side of a therapist's couch. So I went. There is no official point at which we can say that therapy is destigmatized, and it may well continue to be looked down upon in some communities. Still, these efforts seem to be working. The list of celebrities opening up about their mental health issues grows by the day. But I've started to wonder if there's a flip side to this new openness, a new form of judgment that is broken down into a too simple binary. In therapy, good. Not in therapy, bad. This summer, the Times ran an article headlined, Seeking Relationship, Therapy Required, about single people who insisted that their would-be partners be in therapy, who seemingly saw being in therapy as a signal for the kind of person they were looking for, the way someone might want a partner who votes in every election or buys organic. Those this people all want that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's therapy, <laughs> voting, organic is like all the same genre. Okay, keep going. But Someone no physical tweeted, intimacy whatsoever. Absolutely. We run a safe church household, okay? Are you trying to hug me? <laughs> uh, the way you people use therapy to telegraph your feelings of moral superiority is corrupting our relationships and sucking the romance out of life. A tweet in response to the story said... In our conversations, therapists confirm the idea that people are going to therapy without a goal broader than working on themselves, and sometimes to show others that they are working on themselves. This, they said, can sometimes make sessions slightly confusing or rudderless. But the biggest issue, which therapists themselves told me, is that the fixation on therapy as the go-to cure-all leaves little room for people seeking other forms of healing. Therapy for all can help with is mostly an individual practice. The focus is on the self and the relationship to the self, even though the self, too, is informed by outside forces. Therapy can offer a pathway toward understanding, but it can also overshadow the idea of healing in community. Mm. 
a lot there. I'm I'm uh, I'm definitely on the the train of therapy is sort of almost like a universal good. Yeah. Though I suppose that a really bad therapist uh, can um, do damage, just like a really bad uh, church or bad minister. Um, but it is so difficult to live in the world as a person that I think anything you can do that helps, and, and I think therapy is genuinely helpful, just in hearing yourself talk and being listened to and that gracious act of that. I, I, I'm a person who basically thinks that it's, it's almost good in all cases, but I also recognize in myself very much that something good like this has, can become a weapon or a tool of judgment, basically. I go to this thing because I need it. I need help. I'm admitting that I'm, I'm not complete. My low anthropology is driving me there. And yet I, it can become a tool of self-justification, like just like anything else. And how sad is that, I guess. But what are y'all's responses to the article? Well, this is a really heavy thing, but I, it's one of those things that I can't not say it. Um, I was talking to a friend recently who works in mental health and she was telling me about a kid she knew from a family that um, the kid wasn't in therapy, wasn't getting help, and um, was a 12-year-old. And they, um, they, they died by suicide. They took their own life. And it was really jarring. But my friend said something so interesting. She said, you know, it's so good that there's so much of a conversation about mental health. But one danger that we're seeing is for you know, adolescents and teenagers who are, who all of them, right. Are like complete lunatics. Um, and they're associating that with like a diagnosis and, and maybe they're getting help and maybe they're not, but it's sort of, um, pulling them down a path that maybe they wouldn't have necessarily be been pulled down, um, in terms of them sort of self-diagnosing or, or getting these diagnoses really early. And I do want to say I'm a huge proponent of therapy for children. So to make that very clear, um, both my kids have done therapy. Um, but I was like, oh, like it kind of like pulled me back for a second. Like, oh, and then I've been thinking about that conversation. I can't stop thinking about it. And how, you know, we do um, we do self-define a lot in 2022 by our diagnosis. And how right. limiting that can be like, um, like, oh, well, I, I don't do that because I'm an anxious person or I can't manage that because, um, you know, I, I have a, a prevalence towards depression and that makes me really sad, honestly, just because I know I'm going to sound like a greeting card, but like life is super short. And, you know, to think that there are things that aren't possible for you to do because you've been given this diagnosis or you've given yourself this diagnosis is, is bleak to me. So, mm. you know, I, um, <clears throat> my brother and sister-in-law are pregnant, which is so exciting, like so mm. exciting. And, um, I've spent the past few days going through baby clothes and, um, even went through his photographs in detail from childhood, which was such a beautiful way to get to know my brother again. Cause there's such a big age difference, you know? Mm -hmm. And I like matched photos with items. So if I found, you know, something my mother would say a onesie when he was a baby and I found a photo of him in it, like all that is sort of put together. It was really hard emotional work. And there was part of me that wanted to stop and say, you know, it's easy for you to fall into depression right now, especially your own grief issues. Like you should just stop. 
And it's like, but no, but this is like this beautiful, hard thing that I have to walk through. And so I think when therapy can kind of limit those beautiful, hard things that we need to walk through, um, which I I think it actually can. um, I I think that gets dangerous. Yeah. I I think we're going to talk about this with the next article actually about sort of that therapy can become an excuse to not do hard things and it's self care almost as a, as a, as a excuse or as a, <laughs> yeah, isn't the identifier. whole, isn't the whole point of therapy so that you can do things that you're scared of doing? Like I, you know, I've known people who are, str- who struggle with, who struggle with anxiety, for example, <laughs> right. you know, and they don't like taking, um, being on the airplane or they don't like right. getting in elevators or whatever, but at least with, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, the whole point of that is to learn strategies for helping you to to do things and to sort of manage your emotions in those difficult times. It's not to limit you. It's to to open life up. Um, but I guess we're talking about the next article. What, um, no. what, what I thought of with this article was actually, I thought about Crocodile Dundee. Remember Crocodile Dundee? Yeah. Um, and there's a that's scene. That's not a knife. Deep that, cut. This is a knife. There's a scene where the, the main female character, whose name I can't remember, she's going to therapy. And Crocodile Dundee is like, why are you going to see a head shrinker? Like, are you, you know, are you, or someone they know is going to therapy. And he uh-huh. says, is that person crazy? And she says, no, 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 just, you know, they need someone to talk to about their problems. And then she says, you know, how, Crocodile, how do, you, how do you deal with problems in the town that you come from? And he says, well, you, you go down to the pub and you tell Wally and then Wally tells everybody else and then problem solved. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just get it out in the open as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do wonder whether therapy becomes a substitute for friendship. You know, oh, for, for, I, for just for, for having, for ha- Absolutely. and I even, and honestly, I even think about this podcast, right? Like, what do we do here? We, for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, we sit and talk about our lives and we listen to each other. And I say, I have a few people, I'd probably do that with you more consistently than just about anybody else. Like maybe my wife, maybe Jamie, right. you know? Um, but friendship is in such short supply. We've talked about that a lot. People are so alienated and there's such fear to be honest with anyone about what's actually going on in your life, lest you be rejected or kind of wear them out. But here you have this person that you're paying (laughs) to listen, just to listen to you. And God willing, they're trained and they can help you find some healing and some peace and some resolution. But I also think, um, again, just being listened to is so unbelievably powerful and and to not judge, to, to listen to somebody and to not judge them, which is kind of what friendship is sort of about, isn't it? Which we seem not to have time yeah, for. You don't have to, don't you don't have to pay for. the friend. That's the, yeah. The, 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 there's no contingency in terms of you don't pay uh, the friend. And and I, I again, I think therapy, although it can look on the surface like it's something self-centered, I'm just going to go work on myself, et cetera. It's, it's really a way of feeling less alone yes. so that you can, and, 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 and being drawn out of yourself yes. by hearing those words. I think that's, Deeply powerful, and you know, I was I was at a conference this past weekend at fifteen seventeen, and Stephen Paulson, the great Lutheran theologian, she's talked about the conscience being sort of heavy laden, and we're always looking to unload our confession on other people mm. because uh, you know we we uh, we just we want to unload it on the world. I want to unload it on my my spouse. I want to unload it on my friends. I just but I've got. There, I want. I want to say that everything is that's wrong is out there, or whatever it is. I'm prowling around trying to offload this burden of bad feeling, guilt, shame, etc. And um, 
if you've lost that, if we don't have friendships and if we don't have church, then therapy is, is I think it's, it's a better um, solution than a lot of other solutions. Sure. Um, yes. I, I would say that. I, 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 I do wonder a little bit if it become like, you don't need just therapy, you know, you, you need, uh, uh, and I don't think therapists, you know, a lot of people would say that I've been in therapy 30 years and I'm still the same screwed up person. Like I haven't actually made that much progress, but I have felt it's made life bearable to be listened to once a week by someone who is uh, on my side. And that's, that's enough. I, and, and if, if, if churches aren't providing that and if uh, other friendship friends aren't providing that, then I, I want to see people get some relief from the burdens yeah. they're feeling. I suppose there can be a kind of a, I would love to see the burden of shame and guilt or the confession be met, not only with a listening, but also with a um, uh, absolution. Like, I think that that's a, a more powerful, potent thing, but I also recognize that that's um, bungled so often. And so and non-judgmental uh, listening almost is absolution. It, yeah, I agree. You know? I agree. It, it functionally is basically the same. Yeah. Like, I, I hear you, I see you, and I love you. But you Sarah, know? I also do see... There, Freddie DeBoer wrote Sarah's something sure recently. About I don't think it's the same thing at all. I just... As absolution. Well, it's experienced, no. it's experienced emotionally as yeah. absolution. Just being able to offload... Yeah. You know. I can, yes, I can see that. I just... I know when I've brought sins to therapy you know when I've talked about how much I've like yelled at my kids or you know been hateful towards my husband you know I don't get the same relief at all in a therapist's office by saying it out loud that I get on my knees in the confession so I got I guess or for saying me, you're sorry to those people that you hurt you harmed yeah, yeah yeah I mean that's a huge you know you're right. gosh So, but even that, like, because I don't, I can say I'm sorry, but even then, um, you know, there's something about confessing sin to one another that the sin still lingers for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and when I, and maybe that's just my own neurotic brain, but like in full confession to God, like that's, that's when I feel the merciful work of Jesus. And that feels very different for me, but Hmm. Well, Sarah, I do. I do want to pick up on one thing you said that um, I, I think that the search for identity is so palpable. We, we we see it so much today as like a solution to our problems. If I could just sort of have a fixed point that I could hang who I am on, and I think for a lot of people, uh, and you know, younger people, uh, I think are prone to this right now. Is like y- your diagnosis becomes your identity, and it's what like what doctors talk about. You become married to your illness, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that is a uh, there's the self diagnosis. There's this sort of who am I? You had, you start to ask yourself. Well, well, who are you without the depression or who are you without the anxiety? And then you also notice that the, the, that the, that some of the self diagnoses, we rarely diagnose ourselves as like, you know, schizophrenic, you know, it's a like serious people who have to had to deal with serious mental illness that's debilitating and destructive. And like the, you know, Freddie DeBoer talks about it in terms of he's got a sort of a, the type of mania that involves him wanting to, you know, kill people. And that's not like somehow to be accepted (laughs) 
and to be uh, to be empathized with. There's a, some sense in which he needs to be restrained and and helped, and that it's there's more than just. Okay, so this gets into the next article, in fact, which is Hugh Green wrote a couple of weeks before that in the New York Times, saying he's a therapist who said we have reached peak mental health. We are talking more and more about our mental health, and this has been enormously positive. But the term mental health is a euphemism, and euphemisms are what we use when we want to obscure something. This language, in contrast to mental illness, encourages us to focus on the regulation of more more or less transient states and on the maintenance of something we supposedly all have. Mental health conjures phenomena that are more or less relatable, anxiety and depression. But who is being excluded as a result? The change in language is supposed to address stigma, but it has simply moved our attention away from the very people who face the most stigma, those with diagnoses of schizophrenia, for example, or symptoms that do not allow for ready participation in the mental health curriculum. And then then he goes on to say, consider the relatively recent notion of a mental health day. We absolutely need to take days off work for our mental health sometimes, and it is important that employers recognize our needs. But people also need deserve days away from their work without justification. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, when mental health is given as a principal motivator for our choices, we are prioritizing our own experiences. As a result, there's less room for moral or ethical considerations for our behavior, and also less room for motivations that have to do with social, community, or familial commitments, or doing something for its own sake. There are probably lots of things we should do in spite of our mental health. Helping others, forming deep emotional ties that may then need to be painfully broken, becoming immersed in sometimes maddening, at times obsessive political or creative projects. These are choices that need deep, rational, ethical, and personal engagement. Just another sort of interesting wrinkle to the mental health discussion. Um, Well, I just think that talking about mental health as opposed to mental illness is a way of the tyranny of positivity, I think, coming through a little bit. And like, you can't say there's anything wrong with me. And like, this is a, I think low anthropology unreleases us from this burden, but it it is very much like, I don't like talking about mental illness. I want to talk about mental health. Or even wellness. Right. Wellness Wellness is a step further, (laughs) you know. And then I, we're again, like right into bath bombs. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> hop, skip, and a jump. It's generally great that I I think it's generally a really positive thing about our that we're talking more about mental health, illness, etc. Whatever the thing is. It's not ig- categorically ignored as something that is uh, hysterical. But I, I don't know. Sarah, you look like you've got some serious I mean, thoughts. I, I want to hear. I have a lot of thoughts. So. First of all, I want to say that like easily a third of like the mental health professionals that are on Instagram are ridiculous and <laughs> people go on and like get the advice and then they try to use it on their husbands and their kids and, you know, and they have never actually sat in a therapeutic session. And I find that to be incredibly disturbing. Um, I love this juxtaposition because all I can see is just these like self-righteous I mean mostly white women although there's some women of color who are like really pushing the mental health thing online which is great but also some of it I'm like that is bad advice um just like basking in sunlight you know and then (laughs) over in the dark corner is this huddled mass of broken wounded bodies of people who actually struggle with profound mental illness every day and they're Mm. still not okay and we still won't talk about them and you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's still not glamorous, right? Like, 
to have bipolar depression. Like it's just, so that is very striking to me. I'm of two minds about this. Like I get, yes, we're all talking about mental illness. We're all talking about wellness. Okay, great. But what, but what I wonder about is I read this week that in 2019, there were, uh, I'm going to get the number right, but I swear it was like there were 8 billion snow crab. Okay. They recently did a count and it's at 1 billion. And really it's because of global warming. And I wonder if there's not so many terrifying things out there in the world that this is the one thing internally that we can sort of, oh God, people are going to send so many angry emails, uh, selfishly focus on and feel like we're perfecting and feel like we're making better um, as a way to avoid the fact that Russian, Russia might just like blow the world up. Do you know what it's I like mean? It's like the secular Benedict option, kind yes. of. It's, it's like secular monastic. Only it's like, like just yourself. You know what I mean? Like there's no community. It's only, it's only you. Yeah. It's really yeah. like disturbing. It can feel like a culturally approved way of just being more self-involved. Yeah. Like that there's, and, and it like, can. Like because, I don't care what's yet, going out there. I just know that I'm doing my best to be the best person I can be. So you right, all. Right, because and what yet, we I, know yet, is like being in community with each other i mean literally this is not like sarah christian right this is like actual research tells us being in community with each other right and helping each other like being of service like aa being of service in other people's lives is actually one of the most healing things we can do Mm. that's uh, you're not lying. I, I, I think there's. You know I mean? <clears throat> so that's not I mean, what people I do, are doing I, on Twitter. They're not being uh, of service to each other well, on Twitter. I, <laughs> no, you know they're not being of service to one another on the Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> I agree 100. percent And I think that this is why therapy alone is not the is not the we we, we, we when we overdo it, we don't realize that I, you know when when I'm finished talking with a therapist and I talked to my therapist yesterday. I felt more equipped and more excited totally. to go and serve my family and my children who needed me and to talk to the, the Mockingbird staff who was in town. And like, I definitely felt unburdened and, and fresh. So I, I want to like acknowledge that Absolutely. deeply. And I don't like, know what I'd do I'm without it. And actively in therapy? Absolutely. Yes. But it's hard. It is hard not to see it as a cultural symptom sometimes. Yeah. And RJ, what, what do you think here? As a, as a man not who's, in therapy, so we're judging him. In, in, in profound well, need of a lot of therapy right now. I'm, I'm not currently. I, I am in, the, we're, we're, you know, I'm in a little bit of therapy, not as much as I should be. Um, I think I should be. Can I say something honestly? It's really expensive. It's so expensive. It's really expensive. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I would love to see a therapist every week. Do I have $1,000 a month to spend right. on therapy? Like, I don't know if I do right now. And I, I yeah, hate to say... All that. the best ones don't take insurance. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a mark of pride within this. I hate to say that. Like, I got kids to put through college and yeah. I've got debts to pay off. And it's, I know I should be. It's really expensive. It's really um, expensive. So contribute today to the RJ Heyman in therapy. therapy well, perfect. I, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we need. Um, Sarah, I don't know. I was trying to think about what you were, what you were, there was something you were talking about that sounded very, 
I don't know, I hate to put things in such starkly theological terms, but kind of um, theology of glory versus theology of the cross. Like, is it is does therapy, again, just become a way to glorify ourselves, to live our best life, to draw attention to ourselves, to not tell the truth actually, to pretend to right. be something that we're not? Or is it a way that we begin to grapple with the realities of life and sort of call the thing what it is? Does it lead us into honesty and humanity and compassion and empathy, or does it lead us into self-righteousness and and hiding and and ultimate despair because that leads totally. to ultimate ultimate despair totally so i don't i don't know and i thought what dave said stephen paulson said about us all having a need to unburden ourselves is so true and we don't have spaces to do that in so what happens oftentimes is someone does unburden themselves but they do it in the wrong context they do it in the wrong in the wrong the way yes. and i also say i think this is a huge it's a huge thing for um, professional Christian types for for ministers because you need to have a place to unburden yourself, but the pulpit is not the place to do that. Your congregation yeah. is not the place to do that, you yeah. know. And so, how do you how do you find a way and a place to be a human being mm-hmm. and sort of let it let it all hang out in the way that everyone needs to and to tell the truth, um, yeah, without doing it inappropriately. So it's a it's a struggle. It is a, it's struggle. a struggle. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's part of the conversation. I'm glad. I, I think we've. Uh, thank you for addressing it with 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 me. Um, You're welcome, Terry Gross. <laughs> the uh, next article appeared in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago from Derek Thompson. He did a poll asking people what what does no one understand about your job? What does no one understand about your job? And I'll just read a couple of entries and conclude with the pastor. The first one is a software engineer. That, uh, who said, there are two things the world should know about the work we do. It's amazing that any of this stuff works at all. The simple act of performing a search for best burger in Minneapolis from your phone requires not only hundreds of software systems to execute code in less than one second, but also communication via radio waves, copper cables, and fiber optic lines. It's mind-boggling that it even works, let alone that it works almost all the time. But two... Everything is broken all the time. The internet is incredibly resilient. The network and the software systems that run on it are designed to expect failures and minimize disruption from them, which is a good thing because failures happen constantly. Could be a bug in the new code, a ship drops an anchor on a fiber optic line, or this may be my favorite, some of the systems grow to be so big that they take on emergent properties that no one intended or predicted, resulting in unexpected failures. There you go. Hashtag low anthropology yeah. for you people. Uh, secondly is a financial analyst who says, I am an analyst by profession. I read a lot. I write a fair amount. I build a lot of presentations and speak to a lot of CEOs, boards of directors and the like. Here's what people don't get about my job. The job is about numbers, but everyone thinks in stories. Perhaps data drives that story, or data is the story, or maybe compounding anecdotes drive the story. Whatever it is, it's a story. We are narrative creatures, and we want to be told stories, whether it is about scientific progress or human frailty or what the world will look like in a year, a decade, a century from now. And not only that, most of the people that consider themselves the most rational objective are the most prone to storytelling path dependence, particularly as they become very successful. The narratives become the law, and uh, but also I would think when he talks about story, to me, it's this sort of uh, it's a again uh, I wrote a to, to reference a book uh, that people are emotional creatures, and that we we stories are the technology of the heart, mm. and uh, information not so much. Um, 
But thirdly, this is for you guys, pastor. I've served as a pastor of a few churches over the past 20 years. In addition to the weekly preaching, Bible study, and pastoral care calls, I also have the blessing of officiating at funerals and weddings. The experience of preparing for and officiating a funeral is infinitely more interesting and more important than the same work for weddings. The whole of the community is much more honest and real around funerals than weddings. It is on the occasion of death that we get down to the truly important things in our common life together. What do you think about all of that? I mean, I'm obsessed. I think weddings are literally the fakest day of our lives. Um, so I totally agree. Um, I mean, I think a lot of what I'm sorry if I just upset everyone who's gotten married recently, but um, you'll know, you'll know, give it a few years. Uh, you'll know. You'll know. Um, I, I mean, for me, a, a lot of it is, is just uh, how important, story is in in a lot of those different realms which i'm kind of fascinated by and hidden like i love that there's like all these hidden it's sort of like hidden stories in the way the internet works and the way technology works even from the first guy you know that we don't even know are happening like what a beautiful interesting thought like i'm just thinking about my my 11 year old yesterday who's like why is the internet so slow you know and like (laughs) how like there's all these machinations happening that we're totally unaware of um wow that everything is kind of a miracle yeah. Yeah. Tom, Tom uh, I sent you guys that article. It's short about, you know, Tom Hanks apparently has written a book or yes. something recently where he said he feels like he's made about four kind of okay movies. And he said, I still don't understand how a, mo- how, like, how a movie ever comes together. There's so ma- many disappointments. There's so many people. There's so many complications. He's like, the fact that any movie ever gets made is a total miracle and mystery. And it reminds me of the, um, the Jeffrey Rush character in Shakespeare in Love, you know, who's always being hounded by the financiers. And I was like, how's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? And he goes, I don't know. It's a mystery. So somehow, somehow it all works out in the end. Yeah. Somehow it all works, even though it seems like a total dumpster fire. Somehow yeah. it all works out in the end, yeah. um, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of life and ministry well, and technology I, and honestly, finance and everything. As I've been tra- traveling around trying to talk to people about this whole point of view of low anthropology, I, everyone, you know, it can sound like a a negative thing, a negative verdict, or sort of a, sh- a darker view of, of life, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's more like given how broken everything is, look at how much, how much things work, you know, look, given how, how crazy people act towards one another, look at how many acts of beauty and kindness and goodness none, that you've been the recipient of. Yeah. Like that's, that's a God's work. That's also just God working through people. And that's an amazing, uh, state of awe and wonder at the world. And that, that to me is, um, is, 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 is reason to rejoice. Uh, and I will say I'm not, I don't do funerals, but, um, from the, uh, we did a, um, you know, we did the, the season of the brothers Zal and, uh, John just keeps my older brother, who's a minister in, in New York. He just, he, half of his stories about funerals mm. yeah. and it's always about like, and I talked to this person and they said this about their mother, or I talked to this sibling who hadn't been in church for years. And like, we'd really got down to it. And he has all of these unbelievably encouraging and exciting and beautiful stories 
from funerals. Yes. Yeah. And the wedding stories are usually about stress and presentation. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's, you know, as we talk about, there's aspirational beauty and that there's something unique about that day, <laughs> shall we say. But the wedding stories are usually about crises averted or, uh, or like in, insane, like happenstance, but the funeral stories are almost all about healing and forgiveness and, or it's it's, extreme anger or resentment. Um, but they're about the real, the most real things in the world. Yeah. I think the difference between weddings and funerals, I've never had to think about this, but I think the difference between weddings and funerals is that weddings, we try to foist meaning And in a funeral, you have no choice. Like meaning is foisted upon you by God. Like it's very, it's so different, you know? And that's why I like most weddings, especially because I'm not great um, at like emotional romance. Like most weddings I'm at, like my my face the whole time is just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) You should see her face right now. Yeah, it's not good. Um. Do and not invite so, Sarah Condon to your wedding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas like funerals, I feel like I can relax, you know, because mm-hmm. I know I'm going to walk in and something miraculous is going to happen. That's incredible. It's again, it's a, it's it, it's counterintuitive, though. Yeah. We, we yeah. like, you know, no one, a lot of you people are like, I'm not even going to bring my child to the funeral because it's oh too Oh my intense. God, it's just so you dumb. Know? Bring your kid to the funeral for bring God's sake. Yeah. yeah. RJ, you're the person for here who, sake. Okay. Who, who does funerals all the time. Do you, so this... many funerals. Yeah. Um, there is something incredibly um, powerful about it. I, 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 I don't quite know. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm thinking about the funerals I've done recently for these wonderful, well, blessed what do you saints. Say? I mean, you're, you're, you're the one preaching at these things. What do you, do you, I usually you say something like, yeah, I totally acknowledge it. But I, you I, preach I, the I usually preach a very, a very similar homily sermon. I keep it short, sure. you know, and I talk about how funerals are a day when we remember, um, when we mourn, when we listen specifically to the promises that God has made. And then finally we, we celebrate, you know, uh, because we know that, that this life was not the end and we're going to see this person again, that they've, um, they've received a new body and a new mind and they're in a place where there's no more pain or death or so I, I, I you know, try to remind people that it is okay to mourn. It's okay to cry, you know, we still call things, you know, celebration of life, you know, celebration of life service. Um, but it's, it's, it's really a celebration of God's grace. Um, and with someone you knew and someone who really had faith, there is tremendous freedom just to tell the truth. There was a guy who died recently who, um, he wasn't doing well. Uh, he had a, he had a surgery for a back issue and it cleared up the back issue, but then it exacerbated his breathing and he just couldn't get the oxygen that he needed into his lungs. Um, but he called me and he said, you know, RJ, like I'm, I'm done. I've lived a good life. Like I'm ready to go. And so I rushed to the hospital. We spent some time together and a day later he, he passed away and he was totally at peace and he was surrounded by his family and they knew that he loved them and that, um, uh, you know, that they expressed their love for him. And it was, really beautiful. And his, um, his daughter just said, you know, he, he lived like he died, sort of um, when he made up his mind to do something, he did it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and when he was ready to go, it was time to go. But I mean, so, I've, I've seen be- uh, believers not have that, exp- I mean, I've seen them, them uh, 
be absolutely terrified of death. And like, it, if, 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 if I'm judging their faith based on how they act, I the haven't last seen moments, that as much. I haven't, you know seen, I haven't seen okay. that as much. Those were no. bad Christians, Dave. No, no I'm, they, not saying, <laughs> I'm sure that that's a real not, thing. Yeah. I definitely had people who thought they were close to death be like, how is this real? How can I know? And to be able to speak some words of, of comfort and hope into their life. But I, I have not seen too many people be totally terrified of death. Maybe they're just not telling me the truth. Maybe they're more honest with John than they are they're with like me. They're like performance I Christians until Totally. <laughs> I, I, I love yeah. hearing this. I, I hope it's true. I, I also yeah. just know that I, I hope that also God, uh, you know, um, accepts those of us who, oh, who absolutely. Um, are of two minds about death. You know? 100%. <laughs> and I have no um, idea how I'm going to feel when I when I yeah, get there. We will, sure. we will see. For sure. We'll see. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about this second to last article. This is by Russell Moore, the you know the the sort of famous writer uh, Baptist guy, or now he's I think he got <laughs> booted from there, so he's now working for Christianity Today. He he wrote a kind of a a, a hot take or a counterintuitive article called "Bring Back Altar Calls." Bring back altar calls. He says this, the altar call is out of step with almost every sector of American Christianity right now, and it's easy to see why. After all, an altar call can, at its worst, represent our key vulnerabilities as religious people, such as the confusion of an emotional experience with the gospel. These practices can appeal to our weakness for the quest of bigness, with pastors judged each week by how many people went forward. And an altar call can represent our tendency to be drawn toward novelty and away from the history and liturgy of the church. In Christianity Today, a generation ago, historian Martin Marty argued that evangelical churches of that day were growing at least in part because they met the human longing for the right kind of crisis an ever-present opportunity for people to hear a call to start over and to leave behind the old self for the new one. The altar call at its best balanced the individual and the community. This was true not just for seekers, but for all of us. Every week, with rhythm and regularity, we were reminded of who we were, sinners loved, sinners that Jesus loved. No matter how short I had fallen, the Lord received me, just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me. And every week, at least for those few moments, we were reminded of those around us who had not yet embraced the good news that Jesus loves them too, and we shouldn't give up on anyone who might walk the aisle one day. We often criticize ourselves for our individualism, rightly in some ways, but the altar called its best balanced the individual and the community. The invitation was that Jesus died not just for humanity abstractly, but for you, At the same time, no one walking down that aisle was alone. A silently cheering cloud of witnesses was all around. Those of you in more liturgical traditions will note that all of this you already have. The weekly of confession of sin followed by absolution. The weekly coming forward to receive the Eucharist. You'll get no argument from me, except to say that maybe you can bear with the baby steps of the rest of us. That you might see that low churchers need liturgy too. Invitation hymns like tent crusades and spring revivals probably aren't coming back, but as we look at an American Christianity adrift, perhaps we should ask how we can remind ourselves every week that Christ died for the ungodly. Mm. That's so good. Isn't that great? Dave, it it reminds me of you said, um, years ago you said this to me, that I feel like it was someone at Christ Church who like after you preached was like, I mean, every sermon you all preach, it wasn't just you, every sermon you all preach around here is like, you just assume everyone's in an existential crisis. Do you remember this? 
yeah, and you're yeah, like, yeah. isn't isn't everyone in an accidental crisis? <laughs> um, so I I love that he gives us this much credit that like our confession and absolution and the Eucharist are some sort of an altar call. Um, that's so cute, you know. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think most Episcopalians would identify it as such. Um, I I mean I love that as a as a preaching mechanism as like a thing to point out. Um, for me as someone who leads worship, I actually do think of like, I love altar call meets existential crisis in preaching. And I, I do think that that is very important when we preach to, to, to preach in that way. I mean, you know, it's, it's always striking to me that so many preachers and I, I've, you know, I was certainly trained this way in seminary that we're supposed to somehow bring some new thing, you know, like, it's like, did you know that the Babylonians, you know, something like that. Right. And actually you just tell the same story every week. And that is the most compelling thing to anyone in the pews, because Mm. the same story is Christ died for the ungodly and all of the, the woundedness and the pain and the regret that you carry like that. That's what we mean by that phrase, you Mm. know? Mm. And that's, that's like all anyone ever needs to hear. Yeah. I've been yeah. in churches where communion felt like an altar call. Maybe not every week, Aww, but pretty regularly. That's so nice. Yeah, because I mean, it, you know, there was some emotional manipulation involved, sure. but like, who cares? Yeah. Like, yeah. the music who was cares? insanely good. Yeah, and you're coming down, and the way the service was structured. I mean, it does make me think. Like, I love the way our service is structured, but also like the sermon and the communion are separated by a lot of stuff, right? You have the sermon yeah. and people might be sort of feeling something and then you do the Nicene Creed and then you have the prayer, the <laughs> confession, the uh, the, uh, the announcements, the offertory. By the time you get to communion, you're like, what What was said in the sermon? I don't, right. I don't remember. Um, so maybe there's something to structure. But I mean, I, I sort of came to faith as a result of something like an altar call, you know, like bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Um, and I think there were there was was a time in my life when I thought um, I'd sort of made a good choice, you know, and that was not that was not helpful. But but I'm also I think in the moment when it actually happened, it just felt like a total emotional release, and I felt sort of loved and forgiven and accepted and known in a way I never had uh, before. So I'm yeah. all about the power of the the altar call. It's just a, a matter of figuring out you know how and how and when do you do it and and. I don't know. How much do you need to manage something like that, or how do you just throw it out and see see what happens? Um, I, I have been struck recently. I've heard stories about people who aren't churchgoers and weren't raised Christian, um, but then they want to go to church, and what they actually want to go to is something more like a tent revival than a church service. They, they 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 want they want the real thing. Yeah. You know, they want they want the emotion. They want the 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 That's fever. They the fever go to pitch. Pentecostal churches most of the time. That's I think. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come, to, come to Ember Tyler. People come cry to Ember. Right. People. Uh, well, I I think this. It's so funny that this charge of emotional manipulation. I I am. I have less and less time for. I I accept that it's a real thing, but I also feel like everyone is trying to manipulate you emotionally at all times. All the time. So like, why not be emotionally manipulated by the truth or by God or by love? You know, that's what the message is here. That is like that you're loved and accepted and, and forgiven. Like that's, if I'm going to be emotionally manipulated, that's sign right. me up for that, you know? Um, and also it just is a, like, we are all emotional creatures. It's not like, again, it's not like there's some 
other universe where we're all making these rational, like informed decisions. Totally. That's why we go to movies. That's why we listen to music. Just because we want that. to experience like, something yes. emotional. Or we want to. Like, yeah. Literally thinking of the movie It's a Wonderful Life this morning and tearing up while I was drinking my coffee. Like, we're not going <laughs> to write Jimmy Stewart off as emotional manipulation. Do you know what I mean? It's catharsis. It's, it's catharsis. reaction, yes. right? Ab reaction. Yeah. I saw some, uh, it, it, like, a headline from the Hard Times, which is a satirical newspaper. They're like, uh, you know, man presses repeat on a, a eviscerating song because it didn't hit, it didn't cause quite enough pain the first time he listened to it. You know, <laughs> how many times have we, I need to feel even sadder than that, that that just made me feel i gotta hear it again did we listen to rock and roll because we we're depressed or, or were we depressed because we listen to rock and roll was that high fidelity anyway yeah Sarah. i mean the thing I, I that i have to say is like the the token southerner uh with impoverished roots is that you know my parents both had stories because they both grew up in tiny southern baptist churches in the delta and of like the same even in, and I mean, I think it's like in all of these tiny churches, like the same mom would always, I wish I could remember this family's name, but she'd be like, oh, every Sunday, you know, the whole family would get up during the altar call and they'd be crying and they'd come up and somebody'd start singing just as I am. And it was like, oh, when are they going to get it together? You know, and that was, but what I love is no one ever said to the Jones family or whoever, you know, that's not appropriate. You've yeah. been up enough. You can't come up anymore. You know, exactly. there's something so beautiful about that. Time to stand on your own two feet. Right. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like this cliche. It's like, well, I guess I'm getting born again, again, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but Every at the same morning, time, man. <laughs> if what we're talking about, if what Russell's saying is true, it's like, we need it every yeah. every day. Yeah. And what a, what a beautiful thing that there was a place for that kind of, you know, well, we talk about crying in church. It's the best place to cry in public, you know, that, yeah. that we got. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not just a therapist's office. It's good to cry with other people around, too. <laughs> totally. Well, let's finish with this article from uh, our friend and Mockingbird contributor, Ken Sundit Jones. Now, Ken Jones, who I just got to see in... Um, there's a couple different Ken Jones out there. We were friends with another one, too, in Miami. But Ken Sundit Jones is a professor at Grandview uh, College in, um, or maybe university in Iowa. And he's just been named the first ever Gerhard Ferde chair of, like I think, uh, systematic theology. Okay, and Ken! Yeah, I think Ken is so funny about it. He's like, I thought my career was over. <laughs> like, then all of a sudden, they come to me with this honorific. Um, I've just been trying to fly under the radar. So he's this really amazing uh, guy, and he writes. He's been writing for us a lot. Um, and uh, he was a student of Gerhard Ferde. Now, Gerhard Ferde, we we haven't talked about him maybe as much recently as we have before, but he was a Lutheran theologian or a true radical. And when we talk about the theology of the cross versus theology of glory, we're usually referencing his work in some way. And he wrote a book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, which is really foundational for the Mockingbird Project, but it will, it will mess you up. Um, <laughs> anyway, he talks about, he, it, there's, it's the 50th anniversary of one of Ferday's books called Where God Met Man. And uh, they were published in 1972. And so he wrote a book, called, he wrote uh, something called Where God Met Me. Uh, this is a post for Mockingbird, and he talked about uh, uh, being taught by Professor Ferde uh, in the 70s. He said, 
I'd like to say what Gerhard did in that worship classroom, this is in seminary, was open a door for me into the delights of studying theology, but that's far too mild a description. What he really did there was rummage around in my brain and reorder everything I knew about the world, the church, the gospel, and the Lord. Over time, the edifice of my faith came to look less like earthly success, pain management, congregation strategies, or pastoring as leadership or helping, and more like a couple rough-hewn beams pegged together on a rock outcropping and a tomb carved into another rock. He gave me what the subtitle of Where God Meets Man declares, a down-to-earth approach to the gospel. What Gerhard meant by that phrase was a corrective to the theology of glory that hinged on the assumption that almighty free will produced better religion, and which in 1972 he regarded as having run rampant in the church. I'd argue that nothing has changed. He used the story of Jacob's dream at Bethel in describing a theology built on climbing Jacob's ladder. The church's proclamation and witness had been weakened by offering sinners works which they could do to ascend to godly heights of personal piety and religious fervor, something which always placed Christ in a penultimate position at best. Where God Meets Man, the book, has always been uninteresting to religious people with grand plans for changing the world, and anathema if you're a climber or striver or macher, to use a fine Yiddish term. But I was ripe for the picking. I didn't know how low my anthropological potential was, but as a former bedwetter, <laughs> as, a, as a former bedwetter, now grown kid who, try though he might, couldn't fix his family, I had experienced the reality of the grave. I knew what it meant to die helpless under sin. When Gerhard said, well, I suppose we ought to get started, he became the bailing hook God used to reach into my deadness. The message of our Lord and his cross on Ferday's lips and on the pages of the green and blue book wasn't foolishness to me. It was the power of God given to me and for me. It's so good. Thank you, Ken. I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, except that this vision of like all of the things that we had been aspiring to falling away Mm. and there's just the cross and the rock is deeply relatable to me in this um, sort of new era of my life. I don't recognize myself some days, you know, in a good way, in a really good way. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, I I mean, I've never heard it put so clearly. I will say I'm, I'm trying. I'm living in tension with this all because I I believe that a hundred percent personally I do. That's that's the foundation of like all my preaching, my teaching, my life, everything. And yet, I'm, in you know, rectoring, pastoring, leading this church that I want to see grow. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm trying to reconcile that a little bit. You know, like what is, because I, you know, Dave, you remember when we, when I planted that church in New York, I think I tried to plant, I think I tried to plant it in the most gospel-centric way I possibly could with regard to my leadership, my preaching, everything, and just kind of to sort of wait on God a little bit, wait for God to provide and show up. And he did in powerful ways. And at the same time, that church didn't make it. You know, it uh, for, for and, and not not as a result of the theology. I think there are extenuating factors or whatever. Right. Um, but me and you know, and your brother John and other other 
rectors who are at various churches around the country, we talk about this all the time. Like, what does gospel ministry look like? What does it mean to proclaim this message of God's unconditional salvation and power and our sort, you know, raising the dead to life and all that sort of stuff? And yet, still, like, raise a budget and manage property and manage people, you know, and raise up leaders and all that sort of stuff. Um, is it's mysterious. It is oh, ver- it's, it, there's definitely a tension with the institution of the church. There's no question there about it. There is. There is. Like and, I, and there is. And, and I, I've wrestled with that, too, because when you look in the pages of the New Testament, there's nothing really like the institutional church today, right? There's right. a bunch of small little house churches. There's no professional clergy. People are just trying to not get killed. There's no buildings to maintain. There's no people to be paid. Um, and yet— But there the are, inst- like, rich ladies, you know. There are rich ladies. That's right. <laughs> um, but— uh, but it does also seem that for the last, you know, 1,500 years or so, the institutional church seems to be the way that God has chosen to work. Mm. You know? One way. One way. One yeah. way. A, a pretty big way that God has chosen to work. A pretty big work. way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do, I wrestle, I wrestle with this, and um, it would be easier just to preach and teach it and not have to, like, manage a budget and a staff, but but that's the reality of, like— what church leadership looks like today, and I don't, I, I, there's a, I'm not quite sure how to reconcile all that. Well, Ken's at a different stage of life here, and he's sort of looking back, and I think he's probably seeing pretty clearly about what matters, um, and that um, all of the, I mean, my, I know that my father would say certainly, you know, he doesn't think very much about. He spent a lot of years raising budgets and and, and new buildings and all that stuff, but that most of that just sort of slides off the brain and you remember the people and you remember the funerals, you remember the funerals and you remember this message of hope that you have been entrusted with. And I think, I I don't know, I, I, but I'll say this though, RJ, for what it's worth, like when I got to worship with, you know, at Trinity and and Holy Trinity in in Palm Beach, I felt there was something of this, this, not only this altar call, God, I hope so, but the sort of (laughs) God coming to meet us in our actual reality and sin and with, with pardon and forgiveness. And the fact that you sort of have to, the sacrifice that entails is that you have to sort of hedge your bets or sort of, you know, like uh, live in in tension with this, uh, that maybe that's the the burden of, of being in ministry. Keeps you on your knees, keeps you humble. Yeah, but I, yeah. But I know what he's talking. What what what, what, what Ferde's highlighting is the is the 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 heart of the matter. It total one hundred percent. And and the 100%. institutional stuff it looks different. It's always changing. It's like kind of uh, it, so many of these churches. I, I met with this wonderful group of mainline pastors recently, not in our denomination, in a different in a different mainline denomination. They said, you know, like. They they're they are so energized by the gospel of God's grace for sinners, but they said, you know, my denomination. So much of the anxiety is around like property management and like yeah. keeping, you know, these summer camps alive or, or like keeping the institution going. And like, yes, those are lovely properties and, and probably beautiful things, but it, it, it's 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 kind of a smokescreen, or it's a it's it's a it's almost like it's almost a millstone around people's neck to keep an institution going for the sake of keeping the institution going. So um, that doesn't help put pay the bills or put you know pay University of Texas for the tuition or anything like that. But it is certainly a reminder of what we need to hear when we're in the 100%. grave. Hundred percent. And that's and, all I want is for people to hear that is for people and possibly to hear that being, and experience that. Yeah. And possibly being buried in a church graveyard, you know, like that, 
what do you what sarah you got any 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 i um yeah well i do i have a couple of thoughts i think um one thing i will say is when mom and dad died you know it was almost like the way i had neil like i had neil over christmas break and then i went back <sighs> to school mom yeah. and dad died over christmas break and then in january i went back to my job with students and I was such a train wreck. I burst into tears in front of them all the time. And I did no extra stuff. I can't imagine how bad my sermons were. And the ministry has grown. Mm. And I have, n- I, I have no explanation for that. Yeah. So, I, so that was a very powerful experience for me in ministry. Now, again, I'm not raising a budget. I'm not doing a lot of... The, I don't have staff. It's just me, which... Is hard, but also is like really great because um, I'm not managing someone. Um, but just the way that the students like filled in the gap, stepped up, and then suddenly there were more of them. I was just like, what is God doing? You know? Mm-hmm. And what that makes me think of is sometimes we also have to recognize when God wants a thing to die. Mm-hmm. And I do think a lot of the institutional church lives in this place of like, but we have to keep this going, but this can't die. When it's so clear that God's vision for this and that's a hard thing for us to wrap our brains around but but god's vision for this is that this institution would die um so it's so that runs so counter to the theology of glory or just simply the world saying no the success is caught up in something being sustainable yeah yeah. Rather than saying it doesn't, it's not a final judgment on the fact that this didn't do wonderful things. There, in there its, are seasons. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and you know, the, it's like, <clears throat> it's almost like the way we think about our own human bodies now where, you know, we're, we're all going to live forever and we're all going to be beautiful and young forever. And it's like, why, why do we, you know, we, why do we force this on our institutions as well? Like at some point everything dies. Um, so I think there's, I think there is some relief in recognizing how little control we have, but as somebody who is married to a rector, I, 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 I fully understand, but also RJ, I just want to say it's so brave for you to talk about like living in that tension. Cause I think that's very real. Um, and yep. it's very hard. Those two things are very, I think it would be so much easier for you. Like, here's my suggestion is if you actually just, just ignore the theology stuff and put all your energy into church growth. <laughs> totally. That you was know? My, that's my plan. And Absolutely. forsake the gospel and tell people they're actually getting better. And you know, like that's, that's my suggestion for you Thank to you. sleep better at night. You're welcome. That's been a very um, effective model for many parishes around the country. So that's well, what I'm going to I th- I was the underground floor with RJ there in New York. And I remember thinking to myself, um, this is impossible to, uh, yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. to have a terrible theology in order to start a successful church. I mean, yeah. and, and, and then you need to have a, uh, you know, a, a, a great theology to, for it to, um, continue uh, in some way. Yeah. It's like you need the energy and optimism and high anthropology of a, of young people to, um, to get it going. And then you need the sort of wisdom and low anthropology of a, a older person to, to for you need it to a continue. slightly depressed 60 year old to then run it. <laughs> Well, well, it's just it, we talk, then, it's impossible. It's it was impossible, impossible by the grace of God. By the grace of but by the grace of God. Yeah. And as someone who like was on the receiving end of a whole lot of fruit from that 
quote unquote failed project. It's like oh. it's kind of cool to see over the years how that's worked. But Absolutely. I, re- I remember I, RJ. I remember the day that you. I mean, you were so bereft about it. You're like, I, I think we're gonna have to get people to sign commitment cards that they would come three Sundays a month. And I said, Did I say I, that? I, I didn't say that. Oh, we were. That was on the ch- that was on the RJ. block. And, and, and then, RJ, and then, then you sort of the crazy things. And we're trying no. to keep stuff alive. But then he woke up. I remember, who is much to his credit, my friend Rutger Jan said, "If I've gotten to this stage, uh, then um, it's time to cut. It's over. It's, it's, it's cut ties. Or th- this is this is so much. This is too directly dissonant with what we're actually about. Totally. Um, you don't remember that, RJ? I don't, man. No, I don't. I'm gonna That's cry so too. That's so beautiful. He's though. blocked it out. Sorry. Ugh. Should I not have said no, it? No, no, no. It's on okay. It's okay. I just want to say, like. That's the I, d- degree of your desperation, it, by the way. At the time, I, was like you were willing to kind of go yeah. back on everything you believed. Well, and it's just it's a crazy thing. I you love didn't. what I do, and there's nothing I would rather do, and there's nothing I can do. I think, but man, it's oh. hard. hard <laughs> even when it's even when it's good, it's hard. Yeah. Even when it's good, it's hard. Totally. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's I don't know. Yeah. Hope that's we a got word the, of grace we got the Pharisee and the tax collector this this weekend at, at at church, and I think that there's a whole lot of where God meets man in that particular scenario, and that those of us who bungle the uh, church growth uh, leadership uh, gospel balancing act uh, that that does not. Um, disqualify us in any way from the grace of uh, the one who goes home justified um, is not the one with the high marks. So I think that's enough for now. Now that we've made both of you guys cry. um, (laughs) I have to say before we get off. In the category of inappropriate disclosure, exhibit A. (laughs) No, I love it. Um, I have to say that uh, to everyone listening that that TJ, who is our unsung hero, who um, makes this podcast sound good, Dave and RJ all moved their calendar so that we could meet... So that we could meet early this morning so I can go see my brother and my sister-in-law and sort of be the 39-year-old grandmother that I am now because they're expecting a baby. And I'm very grateful for y'all. And I'm grateful for this podcast. Yeah. Love you guys. Now I'm crying. I know, but I was so thankful. All right. Bye, you guys. We'll talk again in a couple weeks. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>